Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with you. If you have a Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. I don't know if you're like me, if you ever wondered, have you ever wondered if the disciples really knew that they were loved by Jesus? If they ever wondered? It may seem like a weird question. I think we kind of assume that, yeah, surely those guys, they knew that that Jesus loved them. But like, if you really like dig into the gospels and start to kind of read through these encounters and you see how Jesus is constantly like rebuking them and correcting them. And, um, they're always misunderstanding anything that Jesus says that's literal. They take as metaphorical. Anything Jesus says is metaphorical. They take as literal, right? They're always three steps behind. I, I wonder if they ever wondered, like, does Jesus actually love it? Do you remember that? Like there was the day um, there was a day Jesus called Peter the devil. Do you remember that? <laughs> He's a devil. You, you don't think that night Jesus like laid awake, um, I'm sorry, that Peter laid awake at night like staring at the ceiling thinking, he called me Satan. Does Jesus actually love me? So I went to look. This is, this is just how my brain works. Maybe you just, you know, your brain doesn't work that way. My brain is like, do these guys know that Jesus loves them? So I went through the gospels to see like at what point does Jesus say, hey guys, I love you, like just to say to them directly. And I, this is what I discovered. I mean, it was a, you know, um, not a, a rigorous investigation, so maybe I'm wrong. You can prove me wrong later. But as, as I looked through, um, I, you know, I checked all four gospels looking for any variation of the phrase, I love you. And it doesn't show up in any of the gospels until verse 34 of John chapter 13, where he says, love one another just as I have loved you. As far as I can tell, that's the first time he verbally references his love for his disciples. Now, of course, Jesus talks about um, loving God and he talks about loving each other and certainly talks about God loving the world, but there isn't a point where Jesus says, hey guys, I love you until this moment. And in the middle of the rebukes and the dangers and the confusion, he's never like, Peter, I know I called you Satan, but I thought about it. Just want you to know I love you, man. <laughs> right? You know? So I think that they wondered. They had to have wondered. And here's also why I think that. Because I see so much of myself in these disciples. And that may sound like hoity-toity. But if you know these guys, because they're idiot dirtbags, we would see ourselves in them, would we not? And I wonder, throughout my life, I have wondered, could God love someone like me? Because I know myself pretty well, but I also know he knows me better than I know myself. So I don't really even know the half of it. I have wondered throughout my life if God could forgive me, if God could accept me, if God could love me, which makes me wonder if you have ever wondered the same thing. I'm willing to bet that some of you have. Maybe there's something in your past that has created uh, just the the heaviness of a kind of trauma in your life. Maybe you're going through something right now. You just, you, you feel like you can't get your head above water and you lay awake at night sometimes staring at the ceiling and wonder, does God have it out for me? Is, is God mad at me? Did I do something to kind of remove myself from his love? How in the world could God love someone like me? And I know that Christians you know, believe intellectually, theologically, 
that God loves us, but I am convinced that most of us haven't really scratched the surface of seeing just how expansive that love is. We settle for a kind of sweet, sentimental, religious understanding of God's love, and we've never really contemplated it as, as, as forged in the blazing fires of his holiness. So this morning, I want to answer the question, or attempt to answer the question, how loved are you? From John chapter 13. So let's begin reading in verse 1. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the Father had given everything into his hands, that he had come from God, and that he was going back to God. So he got up from supper, laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you don't realize now, but afterward you will understand. You will never wash my feet, Peter said. Jesus replied, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. One who has bathed, Jesus told him, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we, we, we thank you for this word. Thank you for not giving us the silent treatment breathing out by your Holy Spirit everything we need to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And even this very morning, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be here opening our, our eyes and ears to see and hear the goodness of your Son and the vast immeasurable love that you have for us through him. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. What's fascinating also about this passage is that it marks a turning point in the entire book. John chapter 13, verse 1, marks the introduction to the rest of John's gospel. And it's like Jesus' focus has changed. So he's not so preoccupied with his public ministry of preaching and teaching and healing and service and provision and all that sort of thing as he is um, in tending to his closest friends. So narratively, he's, he's, he's tending to his disciples and preparing them essentially for his death. This is what verse 1 means when it says he knew that his hour had come to depart from the world. There's an urgency that sort of clouds this whole scene, that shrouds the, the whole scene. The urgency of the task has now come to bear. And he's gathered with his closest friends, these, these brothers, for a meal. And if you look in commentaries and reference works about this scene, there's some debate about when this meal is, how it fits in the chronology of the Passion Week, for instance, and um, you know, is it a pre-Passover meal, is it the Passover meal, et cetera, et cetera. I find all that somewhat arbitrary. I don't know. I think it's beside the point. <laughs> I don't know when the meal was. I just want to know what's happening at the meal. That's the most important thing for us to see. So let's just leave that argument aside and, and see that the shadow of the cross is looming large over these 13 men. 
And Jesus knows that it's time to drive home some eternally important points. And what's astounding is he doesn't do that by dragging up a lectern or a pulpit and delivering a final sermon or a final lecture. No, instead he does it by rolling up his sleeves and getting down on his hands and knees to wash the dirty feet of his followers. Now, in that time and culture, what Jesus is doing is, in a way, utterly offensive. It is scandalous, actually. And I don't know that we quite understand that. Like, we get to wash somebody's feet is kind of gnarly, right? It's, it's kind of, like, it's gross, I guess, to do that. Um, I had the broad idea once. Um, I work in Kansas City, Missouri now at a seminary, but before that I was pastoring, and at, at my last church where I was pastoring, I had the broad idea uh, one week that I was going to preach my sermon that coming Sunday while I wandered around the congregation washing people's feet. Yeah, it went over exactly as it's going over here. Like, <laughs> that's exactly the response. Um, I, and, and it was about like, I mean, there were so many mistakes bound up in this one mistake. One is, I'm not great speaking without notes. Like I'm a terrible extemporaneous speaker. And so here I was, I was going to like try to walk around remembering my sermon off the top of my head. I'm not a great multitasker. I, like I can't do two things at once. My wife will testify to this. I can't do 1.5 things at once. It, I'm a one, focus on one thing at a time person. So I was already like, this is just a really bad idea. But I thought I was smart because I know it's gross to wash people's feet. I had the bright idea that I was going to call some people ahead of time to prearrange to wash their feet. And like, so I knew, okay, um, you know, I'm not going to wash any ladies' feet. That might be you know, kind of inappropriate or kind of weird, so awkward. I'm not going to do that. So there was men in the church, and I called them ahead of time. And, and I asked, you know, you know, brother, this Sunday I want to you know, preach my sermon while I wash people's feet. And I wonder if I could have your feet as part of this uh, you know, <laughs> demonstration of, uh, of deep love you know, and affection for you. And of course, there was a long pause, you know, on every single phone call, long pause, you know. Uh, but every single guy said yes, believe it or not, every single guy, and I don't know if they were afraid to say no or what, but they, each guy said, they said, sure. So Sunday comes, and I've got this little, you know, basin of water, and I have a towel, and I'm trying to remember my sermon as I walk around the sanctuary and with all the people that I had prearranged to wash their feet. And first of all, what do you want to bet, like those feet, when I pulled the shoes and socks off, what do you think those feet look like? They were the cleanest feet you've ever seen in your entire life. Like, so you could eat off those feet. They were so clean. Dudes were getting pedicures who never would have ever considered such a thing in their life. Um, but what I hadn't anticipated, what I hadn't anticipated was, so each of those guys knew that I was coming and they had prepared. No one else knew that I had prearranged with them. So everyone in the sanctuary was thinking they could be next. So the stress, like the tension, you could cut it with a knife. Nobody heard a thing that I said because they were all just like, oh, my, is he going to come to my feet next? You know, they're wishing they hadn't come to church that day. You know, all these sorts of things. Because it's gross. We know it's gross. I don't want you looking at my feet. I don't want to be looking at your feet. We know it's a gnarly thing. But in Jesus' time and culture, it's actually a dishonorable thing. It's not just dirty and gross. It's actually seen as scandalous. It was seen as one of the most menial, dishonorable tasks that there could be. In fact, some Jewish theologians at the time argued that Jewish slaves shouldn't be required to wash feet. 
because it was an act considered lower than low. Only Gentile slaves should be required to wash feet. And the only time that somebody would wash the feet of a peer, like a friend or a close family member, would be in a very rare act of special love. But there are no examples, zero examples, of a superior washing the feet of an inferior in either uh, um, in, in any Jewish or Greco-Roman source. We don't see an example anywhere except one, John chapter 13. It's the only place that we see it. The God of the universe, down on his hands and knees, doing the job that even Jewish slaves are too good for. Do you think that you're loved? How loved are you? We're going to key in on verse 1. That's going to be really our focus text, but we're going to keep consulting the rest of the passage for our context. And we're going to get a sense of the fullness just in verse 1 of Christ's love for his disciples then and now. How loved are you? Well, first of all, you are loved from the beginning. You are loved from the beginning. Verse 1 reads, having loved his own, having loved his own. Having loved is an English, uh, in the English verb tense, is what's called a perfect progressive form, meaning it's a past action that is continuing in the present. So what it tells us, first of all, is that everything that Jesus has been doing has been done out of love. He didn't decide at this meal, you know what, guys, I thought about it. I, I, I actually love you guys. As I think through everything, I do actually love you. No, he has been loving them all along. And he's been loving you all along. When did he start? Well, he started before time even began. He was loving you before there was a you to love. I think one of the best practices that many Christians could adopt is a regular rereading of Romans chapter 8. I shared some of my affection for that passage with the men on the retreat this past weekend. But a reading of Romans chapter 8 on a regular basis, it would be so soul lifting for you. I think it's the greatest chapter in the Bible. I know it's hard, you know, you can't really do that. The whole Bible is inerrant and infallible and authoritative and sufficient. The whole Bible is inspired. And so to, you know, to pick one passage out and say it's better than the others is weird. But we all have kind of like, right, like there are special portions of Scripture that are particularly meaningful to us. Maybe you have like a life verse of some kind or you've got something on a coffee mug and it just reminds you of a particular promise of God. There's a verse on this pulpit right here. That that's been extracted to help anyone who preaches to remember to preach the gospel. So there's just certain meaningfully applied passages of Scripture. For me, it's Romans chapter 8. I think it's the mountaintop passage of the entire Scriptures. And if you ever find yourself feeling a little lost, a little confused, a lot discouraged, maybe, or convicted, or the hurts are too heavy, or just the pain of life, is dragging you down, read Romans chapter 8 again and again and again. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, we read something fascinating. This just blows my mind. Paul writes, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. I note that it doesn't say for what he foreknew. 
for what he foreknew, as if God looked through time, saw your good works, and thought, that's a good apple, I'm going to put that one in the bunch, or you know, that one looks like a real asset to the organization, a real benefit to the team, I'm going to make sure I draft them. No, it says, for those he foreknew, meaning it's a relational foreknowledge, in some translations, for whom, for whom he foreknew. Certainly God has prescient foreknowledge. He can see future actions. He knows what's going to happen before it happens. But this is a relational foreknowledge. He knows these people and he chose them. Meaning he knew you before there was a you and he predestined you to be like Jesus. Wow. Knowing everything. Knowing everything, Christ loved you. Do you ever think about that? Like, you, you don't surprise him. There's not a day in which you commit a sin, big or little, where he says, I had no idea you were like that. Didn't see that coming. Doesn't happen. Knowing everything. And you're worse than you think you are. You may think you're pretty bad, right? You may think, that, well, you, I mean, I know I'm a big sinner. You're worse than that. But he knows. He knows it. And he still loved you. There's a biblical precedent for this kind of love in, in the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea. The Lord commands Hosea to marry a prostitute. Eyes wide open, knowing everything. That was Hosea chapter 1 verse 2. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said this to him, Go and marry a woman of promiscuity. Why would God command Hosea to do such a thing? Well, he's creating through the prophet a real-world illustration of his own commitment to Israel. And as you keep reading in Hosea, you see that God is rebuking what's called the spiritual adultery of his people. They've gone after other gods. They make repeated commitments to disobedience. They don't commit wholeheartedly to the one true God, Yahweh. And God has covenanted with them, but every single day they are cheating on him. And this in turn becomes a picture, a foreshadow of Christ with his bride, the church. He declares us righteous. He declares us spotless. He clothes us in his perfection. And doing so is an immense outpouring of grace. Because every single day, you and I, in some ways big, in some ways little, cheat on God. Every day. That's essentially what sin is. Every sinful thought, every sinful action, that's you and I saying, you don't satisfy me, God. This is what satisfies me. Committing adultery on God. Every day we drift into decisions of the flesh and we fail to give him all that he's due. And yet he never leaves. He never leaves. He's committed himself from the beginning to a people he knows are going to cheat on him. You and I wouldn't do that. You and I wouldn't do that. Nobody who gets divorced plans to be divorced. The reason you pick the spouse that you do is because you can't imagine that the hurts would ever be that painful. You know their character. You know their love. 
And yeah, we all know that nobody's perfect and, and, and that we're marrying a sinner, but we just can't imagine that the reason our marriage breaks down in the future would ever be possible. But imagine if you could see it. That thing that you just, it doesn't even seem theoretically possible. Imagine you could see it. Standing at the altar with your spouse-to-be, and you could know in five years, this husband, this wife, they're going to cheat on me with my best friend. In five years, this husband, this wife, they're going to give up, stop paying attention, stop investing, and then our relationship grow cold against me. In five years, this husband, this wife is going to become addicted to pornography, and it's going to poison our marriage and toxify our family. If you could see that, the reason marriages fall apart, if you could see it at the altar, would you say, I do? Those things happen, of course, to so many of us, but we never think they're going to happen, which is why we cheerfully in the moment say, I do. This is what the vows are for. But Jesus sees everything. And he stands at the altar with us and he sees right through the veil and he sees right through the fig leaves and he sees it all. Every doubt, every mistake, every neglect of him, every sin, every choice made over a lifetime in which we say, you don't satisfy me. I choose adultery. And asked, do you take this sinner to be yours? Jesus says, I do. I do. John 13:1's having loved is the commitment that Christ makes from the beginning that he will never leave you or forsake you. That there's nothing you can do to get rid of him. Having loved you, he's going to keep loving you. And the kind of love Christ has for his bride is the kind of love that has seen it all and isn't going anywhere. It's the kind of love that doesn't flinch. It's the kind of love that never gets shocked. You're loved from the beginning. But secondly, you are loved right now. You are loved right now. Verse 1 continues, So having loved his own who were in the world, who were in the world. Do you know that Jesus isn't waiting for a better version of you to appear? This is good news. He loves the real you, the you that you are, not the pretend you you want everybody else to think that you are. He's not fooled by that. He's not phased by that. Whoever you are, whatever you're doing, wherever you have found yourself or chosen to go, nothing can separate you from his love. He loved his own who were in the world. What does this mean? This means that right in the thick of these men's confusion, their idiocy, their denseness, right in the middle of their doubt and the middle of their sin at this table, Jesus was loving them. He wasn't holding out on them. See, the, the love of Christ isn't a probationary kind of love. He's not presenting you with some kind of contract like, all right, if you just clean up areas X, Y, and Z of your life, then you can have some of my love. No, he gives himself fully and freely to the real you. 
the real you, the you inside that you hide, the you that you try to protect, the you that you hope nobody sees or knows. That's the you that God loves. That's the you that God loves. No, he doesn't love your sin, of course. But your true self without pretense, your true self without facade, without image management, without religious makeup on, not the avatar you send to church on Sundays, cleaned up version of yourself. You the sinner. You the idolater. You the worshiper of false gods. That's the you that Jesus loves. And this lands roughly sometimes. But I want to tell you, if you don't like this message, you don't like Christianity. Because that's the whole point. God loves sinners. Jesus died for sinners. He didn't wait for us to get our acts together. He knew we never could. This is what Paul writes in Romans chapter 5. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't come to die for godly people. They didn't exist. He died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Tim Keller says, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And if this is true, by the way, we can finally come out from hiding. We can finally be our true selves. We can own up to our sin. We can admit we are sin. Do you know, this is one of the beautiful things about Christianity, and you don't get it anywhere else, message of the gospel, which basically says this, to qualify. Do you know what you need to be to qualify for Christianity? All you got to be is a sinner. That's it. Like, you're pre-qualified. The bar, the, like, the bar could not be set any lower. How do I, how do I get in? Be a sinner. That's it. And in fact, the only way not to get in is if you think yourself above it. If you're unable, unwilling to admit that you're a sinner. That's the only way to disqualify yourself. And so this is where a warning actually comes in, in the text. There's a warning embedded in this text. Because to say that Christ loves you right now, just as you are, is not to say that his love shouldn't or doesn't change you. It doesn't mean he means for you to stay exactly as you are. Like you can't clean yourself up for Jesus, but knowing the love of Jesus has a cleansing effect. If anyone is in Christ, behold, he is a new creation. So to know this whole love, you must present your whole self, your whole sin to him. And so Jesus comes to wash Peter's feet. Verse 6 Lord, are you going to wash my feet? I'm picturing Peter as an Italian for some reason. I don't know. Like, you're going to wash my feet. Forget about it. You know? <laughs> Jesus answered him in verse 7, what I'm doing you don't realize now, but afterward you understand. And he could, he could be saying this like every minute of every day with these jokers. Like what I'm doing you don't understand. Afterward you'll, you'll figure it out. Like yes, of course, thank you. What I'm doing you don't understand now, you'll understand it later. And Peter says, you'll never wash my feet. And it sounds humble. 
doesn't it? Sad. Like there's sound, it has a ring of humility to it, but it's actually, there's some self-righteousness here. And this is why, because to submit to washing means acknowledging you aren't clean. To submit to washing means acknowledging that you aren't clean. And some people seem completely unable to do that. They still think of themselves as good enough. And Jesus replies, continuing in verse 8, If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And something seems to click for Peter. The light bulb goes off in verse 9. Lord, not only my feet, but give me a bath. Right? Also my hands and my head. See, the love of Jesus isn't something to dabble in. The atoning work of Christ isn't something you can have a little bit of. Please never think of Christianity as something you can just get your feet wet in. One who has bathed, Jesus told him, verse 10, doesn't need to wash anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. This is why he said, not all of you are clean. And he's talking about Judas, of course. And what's chilling about the scene, at least to me, is that Judas is there at the table, at the scene of love. And we could even assume... I mean, the text doesn't tell us explicitly, but we could even assume that Jesus washes Judas's feet. But Judas isn't an, an, an inch closer to salvation, is he? He's committed to his own way. He isn't washed in the way that counts. He's just a hanger-on when it comes to the love of Jesus. He's interested in the benefits, but not the cost. Roger Fredrickson says, Judas has removed himself from the sphere of Christ's love by becoming the tool of the devil's hatred. And this is how John puts it in John chapter 3, verse 36. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. And here is Judas sitting at the table, getting his feet washed, and he's not any closer to being bathed. I hope that's not you this morning. Do you just come to church to get a little religion? Because it's the culturally accepted thing to do. Mom and dad dragged you here, or spouse dragged you here. You'd hear about it if you didn't come. You just come in to get a little bit of Jesus for your week? Are you willing to let Jesus wash your feet? Get a little theology here and there, maybe read a couple of books, go to church, sing some songs, play along with the religious thing for a little bit, but you're not really willing to put your whole self into it? Are you refusing to give Jesus all of you? If you want his love, you can have it. That's the, this is the whole point of the text. If you want his love, you can have it. But there's no halfway about it. He wants all of you. And many condemned people suffer from a little gospel. And you can have a little faith. Jesus said you could. You could have a mustard seed-sized faith. You could have a tiny faith, weak faith, beat-up faith, as long as it's a true faith. You can have a little faith, but you cannot have a little gospel. 
a halfway gospel, a just get your feet wet gospel. Don't be like Judas. Don't just get your feet wet in God's grace. Jump all the way in. And to those who are willing to offer their broken selves to Jesus, look, this is all I got. I don't have anything to offer you. Jesus says, I know. All I got is, is me, my sin. That's the, that's the only deal I'm making, Jesus says. Give me the wretch that you are, and I'll give you all the love and perfection and righteousness that I am. I'll give you the treasure of me if you just give me the emptiness of yourself. If you're willing to do that, you will find that his love is waiting for you right now, this very moment. No delay, no hesitation, no reluctance. Right now, right here, whatever your circumstances, whatever your background, whatever your fear, whatever your hurt, whatever your sin, whatever your sin, his love is for those who are in the world, for those who are in the thick of it. You can be in the sphere of his love right now. To those who are suffering, he is sanctifying. To those who are doubting, he is delivering. To those who are hurting, he is comforting. To those who are dying, he is holding. For those who are sinning, he is advocating. And he will never let you go from his love. You who are in the midst of this painful, broken world in a painful and broken life, he loves you. He loves you. And while we are not perfect, his love is, and he will never stop. You are loved from the beginning. You are loved right now. And thirdly and finally, you are loved. You guessed where this was going. You are loved forever. You are loved forever. Having loved his own who were in the world, verse 1, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. John Knox's translation says, he gave them the uttermost proof of his love. The immediate referent here, of course, is to the cross. This is what John is referring to in verse 1, by the hour for him to depart from the world. He loved his own who were in the world so much, he's willing to go all the way to the end of the mission for them, all the way to the cross. If you think your sin isn't that big a deal, all you have to do is look at the bloody cross where Jesus was killed for it. And there where you see the great wrath of God poured out for sin, see at the same time the great, immeasurable, vast love of God poured out for sinners. The cross is the ultimate proof that God could love someone like you. If you ever wondered, how could God love someone like me? Look at the cross. He couldn't have paid a higher price than his only son. You want the evidence you can see traces of the evidence throughout your whole life, really, if you, if you want to look at it. You can see traces of evidence throughout all the promises of Scripture. But the ultimate proof, as you see the mountain range of God's faithfulness to you, towering over all of those mountains is the peak of Mount Calvary. It is proof that God loves sinners. If I ever doubt it, that's where I look. I don't look at my circumstances. That can lead me to doubt. Gosh, I wonder if God loves me. This is stuff going on in my life. But when I look back at the cross, I think, oh, there's nothing else he could have done. There's nothing else he could have done to prove he really does love me. In fact, the washing that Jesus is doing in this moment is a picture of this, a foreshadow of it. One commentator notes that even the phrase translated in verse 4, he laid aside you know, you know, his outer garment, is the same translated elsewhere in the context of laying aside his life or laying down his life. How loved are you? You're loved all the way to the cross. 
Four chapters later in what's often called Jesus' high priestly prayer, our Lord is he, he slumped down in, in, in spiritual anguish in that garden. The cross is now so close. The, the shadow is so dark over him. He can practically feel the splinters in his back. And he's sweating blood. And it says he's thinking of you. He's thinking about you and me. He's buckling under the weight of our disobedience. And the text says he prays for himself. That makes sense that he would pray for himself in this moment. And then he prays for his friends, his closest disciples, these men, who, by the way, at this moment are sleeping. They're sleeping at his moment of greatest need. You think you needed your friends around to help you out. This is the moment. They're sleeping, and he's just he's praying for them. And then it says he prays for us because Jesus um, says to the Father, I, I'm praying for those who will believe through this work. That means you and me. Every Christian from that point into the future. He's praying for us in that garden. And I want to believe it's just my imagination. I mean, I think it's textually based and just, and, and I think it's theologically sound, but the text doesn't say this. It's just my imagination. I want to believe that somehow in the space-time economy of the omnipresent incarnate Lord in that garden, that because he says he's praised for everyone who will believe, that somehow because his mind is omniscient, every name, every face, of every believer who ever lived would flash across his mind in that prayer. I think it's possible because he's still fully God. That he saw my face when he prayed and he saw your face and your name came to his lips or through his mind when he prayed for everyone who would believe. In that garden, he said, Father, take care of Jared. I do this for him. Father, take care of David. I do this for him. Father, take care of Rebecca. I do this for her. And so on and so forth. Your name. I am in them, Jesus says to the Father, and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and, get this, have loved them as you love me. What kind of love is that? That God would love us like he loves his only son, his sinless, perfect son? He loves us like he loves his son. And then Jesus takes us with him to the cross. Paul Tripp says, Jesus didn't purchase savability. He took names to the cross. He loved you to the end of his life. And of course, he doesn't stay dead. Three days later, he rises again. And while your sin stays in the grave, his love for you doesn't. It reigns and rules because he reigns and rules. Because of Christ's resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father, you are loved from the beginning all the way to the end for all eternity. Romans chapter 8 again. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. And I think Paul's he's just running out of stuff to say like I just I better say there's nothing there's nothing that will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord the expression that's translated here in verse 1 to the end RVG Tasker says um, could very well be translated completely he loved them completely 
You're loved from the beginning. You are loved now. You are loved forever. Don't yawn. This is the greatest thing you could ever hear. There's no better news. I was sharing with the the brothers on the retreat that my favorite old dead guy is Martin Luther because Martin Luther is like, he's so neurotic and just so messed up and so doubtful of the love of God. Like I was like, that's, that's me. That's me. And there's one line from Martin Luther that I just really identify with. And um, he said, if I could just believe God loved me, I would stand on my head for joy. I think I, that's me. If I could just believe God loved me, I would stand on my head for joy. Could it be true? It would change everything if it were true. Well, my prayer for you, after our meditating on John chapter 13, verse 1, would be that you walk out of here on your head. Don't do the disciple thing where you interpret literally what I mean metaphorically, but anyway. Walk out of here on your head. He really does love you. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful news. News that we would not have, we would not have made this up. It makes so little of us and so much of you. So it must be true. And I thank you that it is true. That you come to me as I am. And love me as I am. But regard me as your son is. And you don't leave me there. That your son has promised that where he is, I will be also. That he is preparing a place for me. And then all along, however my life may go, he is preparing me for that place. So I thank you for the good news that you love sinners so much you sent your son to die for them, that whoever would believe in him, having repented of their sin, would have eternal life. Press that deep into our hearts. Give us an awe daily for this message that we might love you as we ought and love each other in reflection of that grace as well. And it's in your son's great name that we pray these things. Amen.